Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I am Kyle Fincham. You're listening to Behind the Movement. Uh, my guest today is Matt Mulligan. Matt is somebody that a, a number of people recommended I connect with when I put out a poll on Instagram asking who I should have on the podcast. Um, so if you're one of those people, I hope you enjoy this, and I would love to hear your comments on uh, on how you enjoyed the conversation after you listened to it. Um, I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed this chat. Um, I would say Matt and I became uh, very fast friends through this conversation, and um, yeah, already kind of staying in contact uh, via WhatsApp and Instagram and email and things um, outside of this conversation. So uh, not that I don't always feel like I make friends with everybody that I have a, a, a conversation with on the podcast. I often feel that way, um, but um, I can't always say that it feels like I, you find somebody who's like a, who almost feels like an old friend that you didn't know was out there. So uh, I really appreciate that, and uh, yeah, makes me grateful to everybody who said I should chat with Matt because uh, it's a nice discovery of uh, of a new old friend. Um, before we get to it, just a couple of announcements. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow. I'm headed to Berlin this weekend. I'm facilitating Infinite Play in Berlin in Tiergarten Park, um, both Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, it's the only two-day event that I'm doing in Europe this year, and I'm really excited about it. Stefan Kranik is hosting it. There's already a, a, a really awesome group of people signed up. There are spots available if you want to join us. All you got to do is, uh, is go to my website, letsinfiniteplay.com. You can sign up right there and, uh, and join us. I think it's going to be wonderful. Um, looking at the calendar here, beginning to plan retreats for the end of this year and beginning of next year and, and all the way through next year. So keep an ear out for that. The infinite play retreats have been really um, magical and incredible. Um, so if you feel like coming through New York or if you live in New York and you want to participate in those, yeah, keep an eye out. We had people visit and participate from all over the United States and some people traveled as far as Brazil to, to do the last retreat so yeah honored that people are 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 coming out for it and, and willing to travel for it um but yeah that information will be out soon and if you're traveling through new york city we do a weekly infinite play every sunday from 11 a.m to 1 p.m you can drop me a line to to get information on that uh the details are at letsinfiniteplay.com as well but you can always email me at the infinite play guy at gmail.com or through Instagram, kyle.e.finchum. All right. That's it. Let's get to the conversation with Matt. Um, here's a, a, just a few words on who Matt is and what he's about, um, and then we'll get to it here. He has spent 20 years weaving threads between a professional practice of circus, dance, and physical theater while coaching people to find for themselves more joyful and authentic physical practices. Matt is also an advocate and consultant for arts access and inclusivity. You can follow Matt on Instagram at Matt Mulligan. For coaching information, you can go to his website, bodyroots.org, and for um, his work in the arts, 
you can go to rootandbranscharts.com. As I said, this was a really uh, wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is, Matt Mulligan. Well, I mean, let's face it, we live in an age when it's, uh, it's easy to psych yourself out with all the different forms of communication we, we do and are expected to do. So I think, um, yeah, I also had a, a, a similar experience one time. I was on a, a podcast with a friend of mine in Ireland. And actually, what was great there was, you know, we've, we've known each other for years. So it was a really natural, organic conversation. And it spun out for like two hours. And we were like, by the end, I was like, oh, my God, wow, we've covered a lot of ground there. And then both realized, you know, simultaneously that we hadn't been recording. (laughs) 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 So so it's just like, all right, cool, man. That was just a a really good, uh, deep, meaningful conversation for the two of us. That's all good. That's amazing. I feel like that's what should happen with like just people in general. Like we should like like enter into like a conversation with a friend and then act as if we're doing like a podcast and then nice. let the conversation yeah. unfold that way as opposed to just like what it might be otherwise and see what that looks and feels like. It could be an interesting yeah. social experiment. Lovely. Count me, count me in, man. Count me in. Yeah. I actually had that. Ha- so I w- do you know Tomislav English? Do you know him? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, I've only met, um, uh, years ago now at, at one of Tom's workshops, but am I right in thinking he's the, um, the original founder of the, was it Ferris Anime? Yeah. That. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. So I was just out in London, um, teaching for their intensive and yeah. I had, I had met, Tomislav on the podcast and then he invited me out to come and teach for the intensive but he reminded me that when we did the podcast we started similar where we just were chatting and it was like 40 minutes or 30 minutes of not recording um because I was doing this new experiment where I was like oh I'm not going to record right when we start and he's like getting in there and going into some deep stuff. And I remember being like, dude, I think we need to, I think I need to hit record. I need to stop for just a second. But somehow he, somehow he remembered the stuff we were talking about. So when I saw him a couple weeks ago, he's like, oh yeah, we were talking about this and this. It's a shame it didn't end up in the podcast. I was like, how do you remember all of that? It's unbelievable to me. Man, encyclopedic brain is still something I've yet to master that one. So, um, yeah, I need need to spend more time with people who've got that dialed because, um, yeah, yeah, memory on on what was said when is is not one of my strong suits. But I suppose the the flip side of that is the uh, organic conversation is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the yeah. easy one for me. To, I mean, I'm like I say to people, I read a ton, but my retention is also very low. Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. That's it. I've got to cover a lot of ground because the amount that stays with me is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I'm only going to hold on to 20%, that means I need to take in a lot. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm actually, yeah, I'm punching below my weight. That's what people don't realize. I've got to, I've, yeah, I've, I've got to get a lot covered. I, 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 did. In, I feel in trusted company already, Kyle. Great. <laughs> I did notice like um, in, a, in an interesting way, like, you, I mean, you're clearly on social media, but you're not, it's not a place where you're terribly active, right? 
Yeah, and on on that score, that's again why you know we started this conversation just saying it's kind of taken um, a lot of perseverance on both sides, and and I'm realizing increasingly that that that's largely because um, yeah, my engagement with with socials over many years has just been quite bipolar, really. Um, and I think, yeah, being honest with you, that's just coming from a place where um, I, I can feel quite sort of sensitive to, to to new technology in many ways. And, you know, I, I think my journey with the body has been largely to try and find a stability which perhaps doesn't come that naturally to me, actually. And as a result, like new technology, it feels like, you know, it's so much in the head. Um, speaking for myself, that I go through these phases of of being like, oh, wow, this is a wonderful tool. It's a great way to connect. There's, you know, there's so much opportunity and potential in that space. Um, often end up, you know, engaging for some months in that way. And then sooner or later, I seem to kind of flap back to this kind of, I think of myself like a sea anemone, you know, like when it gets touched, all of those tendrils just kind of go back in <laughs> and it feels a little bit like then I go through these other phases where I kind of need to maybe drift away from it for some time. Um, yeah, but I, I feel like now I've kind of I've settled in and started trusting that rhythm in some ways, you know, it'll play itself out over however long. Um, and actually, for some time, I was kind of I was feeling that social media had to be really crucial to the way that I choose to share my work. And actually these days, I just trust a lot more that the people for whom my kind of messages resonate, they they just find it, whether I'm posting or not, you know, it finds its audience really. So um, it's been really nice to kind of perhaps just just settle, settle into that bipolarity mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, just like accept that like there's no way, there's no supposed to. It's like the relationship that, you, and, and then it can be a relationship like we have with kind of anything or anybody, you know, like there are some people we talk to every day and there are some people we check in with once a month and some people we check in with once a year. Totally. And I think that we can have faith that those, you know, processes work themselves out. I think there's these kind of flurries, you know, flurries of activity when something's starting to happen. I just think, yeah, you know, my experience so far in life is that like, I'm talking to the right people at the right moment and I can kind of trust that, that, mm -hmm. that instinct. But I, I heard a line in a poem recently that I absolutely loved. It was, um, have you finally stopped shooting all over yourself? And I thought that is exactly it, man. <laughs> that's, that's it. I turned 35 this year and I think I'm finally starting to learn how to stop shooting all over myself. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. What is it? What is the poem? It's um, you know what I can't I can't remember off the top of my head. It's from a, there was a podcast by a wonderful poet called uh, Padrego Tuma, uh -huh. um, called Poetry Unbound, and he analyzes a poem. Um, just very kind of um, in just ten minutes, fifteen minutes, he he kind of reads and analyzes a single poem, and it was one that was was on there. But I've I, I've saved it, so if you want it for the show notes, man, I I can provide yeah. it. Or or send it to me just uh, personally. I feel like I, I, I I've, there's so many things around podcasting. I realize I don't spend enough time on like show notes and things like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes I'm like, oh, just send it to me. 
Um, well, there's, yeah, man. I mean, the thing is, there's just that there's so many. I think the joy of being alive in this day and age is that there's so many different ways of doing this stuff. Again, there is no yeah. should. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 nice that you bring up poetry too, because my inclination was to start asking you because you said it about kind of like your journey, and I was curious about that. And then you mentioned your work, and I'm super curious about that because I don't know much. Um, but poetry. Uh, if, uh, do you have an affinity for poetry? Is that something you you're you're into? I do, man, completely. But uh, like, not something that's ever been really um, like intentional. Um, you know, I've never sort of actively um, in, invested sort of like loads of really conscious time in it. But it's just one of these kind of spaces that I've gravitated to at different moments of my life, and I'm I'm sure that's because you know, to some extent, I had a, a classic liberal arts education, I did a degree in philosophy, uh, had, you know, English literature was in there. So there was this real thread of the power of language throughout mm. my education. But I've always just, I love, I, there's a poet philosopher who I really admire called David White. And he talks about poetry as, um, let me get this right, poetry as language, uh, against which we have no defenses and I absolutely love that because for me you know I love written word I love spoken word but there's something about unique about poetry um where it kind of I don't know it feels like a dance it feels like it's got um a very particular way at circumventing the head and going straight to the heart or straight to the belly so mm. so yeah po poetry is one of those spaces that um I naturally gravitate toward when I kind of need some, um, yeah, need some settling, need some playtime that's um, perhaps not not as embodied as most of the the playtime that that I have. I I just I would say in the last maybe three months got into memorizing poetry, and I never read poetry really ever. And my very good friend teaches a poetry memorization class, and he was like, "Oh, like." You should you should memorize poetry, um, and proposed a poem for me to to memorize, and I memorized it, and the process of memorizing it and and carrying it with me and sharing it with people was like so profound that I was like this this is like a a, a thing I have to do. So like I oh. I learn I'm learning poems constantly, and I and and you know like living in a place like New York City, it's amazing because it becomes a bit of a movement practice because to learn to recite a poem, to memorize it in that way means you have to keep reciting it. And when you're walking around New York City, you just get to walk and recite at the same time. Oh. And it's wonderful. It's so amazing. It's like my favorite. Th I was just doing it before we got on this call. I was out taking a dog for a walk and I was reciting poetry, like just the poems I'm practicing. Well, look, Matt, we, we've, hit a, we've hit fertile ground here because this is something Again, you know, I don't want to spend all the time echoing the words of other people, but something which really first kind of drew me to the work of, of this same chap, David White, that I've mentioned, is that uh, a lot of his poetry is um, is just delivered, you know, like free. You know, he's never reading it, the poems. And he um, he describes this experience of where the memorizing of a poem that whether it's one you've written or one you've heard 
is a, a deeply physical experience because you actually have to find, you know, the, the language has a certain rhythm to it. And often that rhythm will invite a certain, you know, movement or kind of memorization in the body. And he describes often, you know, like yourself, memorizing these poems through walking and perhaps, you know, walking through a particular uh landscape makes it easier to memorize a particular poem um but i i love this idea that kind of you know language um isn't just something that is formed by and lives in the heads i think language is an incredibly powerful tool and it can give expression to things which live in in the body and indeed we can perhaps use the way that we are um you know, languaging our experience to 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 help empower the bodies in in, in new ways. So I'm firmly, firmly with you and a, a kind of particular uh, joy in my life. I've spent a lot of time around campfires. I've got a real passion for just spending time with people around fire. And that that space is a magic one when, you know, you've got a lot of bodies around, you know, very ancient kind of simple practice that of being around a fire and I've been in so many spaces when I don't know the safety or security of that allows people to to realize that actually they do have words that are remembered in their body you know they do there's that all of us have got a poem or a song or a few lines of something we've read somewhere that are living on in our body whether we realize we remember them or not um, yeah, and I think these can be beautiful spaces to, um, yeah, to, to allow some of that out. So I, I hear you loud and clear there, Kyle. Well, and, and like, I don't know, teaching, facilitating, movement, dance, all these things, like, I think it, like, if we take them, like, out of, like, just, like, the, the isolated space, a big part of really, to me, like, what these things are is, like, it's about communication, right? It's about, you know... And it's not a solo, it's not just in one internal communication. It's like, in, it's communication with each other and with all things. And, and it has the potential to like gather and, and feed and nourish that, that communication potential. And things like poetry are, are part of that, right? Because it like, to recite a poem means that you need, you need someone to recite it too, which means it brings people together, right? And exactly. there's something uniting in like a song. Completely. And I would, you know, we'll probably be finding, you know, a language between us in this very conversation about about how we approach this stuff. But I, I would take what you've said there a step further and actually say it's not not just about communication, but actually about joyful communication. I think most of us um, are trying to find ways to live in a way that is fundamentally joyful and be kind of pulled towards um, more joyful ways of living. And I think, you know, the way in which we communicate is, is a huge part of that. I don't just mean communicate with other people, but also how we communicate with the natural world, how we communicate with ourselves. You know, I think it's probably a fairly common experience for most of us to feel like we're we're pretty good communicators. Maybe we've got like, you know, a rich circle of friends, acquaintances, colleagues, and all of this. And yet we speak to ourselves like uh, we're a piece of shit, if you'll mm -hmm. pardon my French. So mm -hmm. I think this idea of, it's always been very empowering for me to ask questions about the extent to which um, 
we, we're moving towards joyful communication, not not just functional communication, but 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 joyful communication. If that makes some sense, I, that makes so. I mean, what I'll say, what it, how it kind of sits with me is like to me, joyful communication. Um, being somebody who like is entering the world presenting play to people is is mm-hmm. communication that's done for the sake of, just because without yeah. it having to be for uh, a benefit or for optimization or for productivity, right? It's, it's non-mechanical. It's like, it's, it's done because it just exists in us and it's part of like what it means to be here. Totally. Oh, and I mean, there, there's a delineation that you, you might have come across in a book that is one of my sacred texts um finite and infinite play by james p cars yeah <laughs> yeah yeah okay oh man you're wearing a sh- look at this here we go <laughs> there well that that for me was just an absolute groundbreaker and realizing that um yeah you know trying to settle oneself as an infinite player in in a place where you know it's um yeah we're not we're not working we're not working within limitations we're constantly questioning what it even means to to have limitation and and on this score actually i I just have to um bring into the conversation a huge gratitude because for me in physical practice when i first encountered the work of our mutual friend tom wexler that was really the first time in the physical sphere that I encountered a body of work that felt really um, about something more than self-improvement, you know? Uh, uh, before that, I'd encountered, perhaps it was also a time of life thing for me, but I was encountering a lot of um, narratives in physicality that were all about, you know, being better, um, you know, some of them framed more empoweringly, being the best version of yourself and all of this, but it was always framed and languaged in terms of self-improvement. Um, and I actually think, you know, we need to be really careful of, of that. That that can be an absolutely exhausting place to be in, in, in my experience and also a very limited place. So when I first encountered Tom's work with, with movement archery and what I now no, he kind of continues through through Wonderground was this real opening, this sense of an expansion into a world where like, wow, hang on, you know, the body can just be about creativity and a personal journey with creativity. So so, yeah, um, there was a huge, yeah, just hugely grateful to have encountered that work at that time because that um, that for me was a kind of nudge toward infinite play uh, on the level of the body. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's one of those things that's, I mean, I'm such a big fan of like what Tom presents and, and how he presents it and Rosaire. Um, and yeah, to me, there's a bit of the like, hmm. yeah, when you talk about self-improvement, there's a lot of, the, there can be a lot of language of like, you're not there yet. You don't have the thing yet. You're not ready yet, mm-hmm. you know? And through some of the experiences like with Tom and other people and, and, and definitely through like things like finite and infinite games, it's like, no, no, no. Like you have all the things right now, like right where you're at right now, you have it. It's just, we just need to unearth it really. 
it's just there. For, exact, exactly this. And, and, and I would, I would again, I'd, I'd perhaps take that a step further in being that, you know, my experience, my embodied experience has been that it's in the body, it's always now. The body is just a, a, a constant expression of nowness. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I don't want to go too far into this language because I know that it can it can get um, pretty airy fairy pretty quickly. But that sense of I, I think I think the body is fundamentally about existing in the present moment. So to be engaging with the body. Uh, framed by narratives that are so full of that that sense of yet that you mention it, it can be um yeah it can quickly become kind of paradoxical and and, and not in a good way <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and, and i i'm speaking here as someone who you know for the best part of 15 years i was you know deeply engaged in different physical practices but most of them if i'm being honest looking back we're really motivated by a deep sense of insecurity, um, you know, not enough feeling, feeling like I'm just, I just need to get over that, that horizon. And then I'll finally accept myself. And, and, you know, we can, we can spend our lives doing that and perhaps only on our deathbeds realize it's like, oh man, I was there already the whole time. <laughs> why, mm -hmm. why didn't I just enjoy it more? Um, yeah, and again, just a few, um, a few sort of lived experiences of, of of actually encountering death, kind of firsthand at quite close quarters in the last kind of ten years, have just really brought me back to, um, to that this sense of joy again. You know, it's like I, I, speaking for myself, I don't really want to spend too much time with practices that aren't rooted deeply in a sense of joy. And a sense of now because i'm only you know i'm i don't know how long i've got i really just don't know how long i've got so um keeping joy at the forefront of things here now today that that has to be critical to um to a full life for me today i think to like you know like yeah you've said joy a lot and i feel like I don't know, like a key component of joy, and this is very finite and infinite games, <clears throat> is um, that capacity to be open to surprise, to be willing to like dance with surprise, right? Um, and I, I think that that surprise is kind of like, in some ways can be synonymous with like change, like either it's like momentary change or like long-term change. And like in... Um, wellness and movement spheres, things like that. There's a lot of language around growth, like this like upward trajectory type language, mm -hmm. um, which I think can confuse people because upward trajectory is not necessarily surprise. You're because you're expecting upward. You, exactly. It's on a, it's on a, exactly. Man. And you're only going to experience joy if you're going up, but it's like, yeah, what, if, what about the joy of the like change? Absolutely. And and actually, it's funny that you mentioned that joy has kind of come up so much in this conversation because it's a word that I love. And it's also a word that I think is deeply nuanced. And perhaps I should sort of um, clarify, like when I'm speaking about joy, for me, there's a real sense of uh, peacefulness. I mm. think um, I think joy fundamentally like 
for me is about a kind of quiet peacefulness really uh and that is different from just you know like happiness and and as you say i think there are a lot of of narratives in the in the well-being world of this this kind of upward upward curve but actually you know i think if you speak to anyone certainly if you speak to me <laughs> i'll find that looking back on my life the periods of perhaps most profound change and growth and where i've been dancing with the unknown the most th that's where i've grown at, but it's also where um it certainly wasn't an upward curve at best it was like a sawtooth you know up down up down and perhaps with troughs that were bigger than the peaks and I, and i think that that is well again i won't speak for anyone else i'll just speak for me but i feel like a rich human life is something in which i'm covering a full spectrum of experience um and i i like the idea that physical practices that can be something that help us kind of wrap those experiences in in a sense of kind of yeah joy as quiet peacefulness rather than just this kind of um you know sense of endless endless upward which let's face it the body itself teaches us that that's that's not how things go you know like the very process of aging is a reminder that like hey if you're here in the material world you're dancing with decay <laughs> that's just part of the the game plan that's how it goes um yeah yeah i, I mean everything beautiful that we're looking at in the world came out of like the death of something else like even this conversation which i would consider beautiful at this point came at the death of whatever we were doing prior to this moment you know if we're going to be really kind of big about it but like everything something dies for like beauty to to emerge and i think about um uh, do you know john yuen do you know john do you have you ever yeah in in, in passing rather than in in depth but um, okay. yeah some 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 level of awareness of of, of his work before now I had him on the podcast like maybe two years ago now, and then he and I have exchanged some messages here and there, but I saw he was on Will Brown's podcast recently, and I only saw this clip that Will posted on Instagram. Um, and I think it speaks a little bit to what we're talking about in the sense of like the, the impact that something like social media has on what we're talking about. Um, because he said that like, you know, when there is an algorithm that's like kind of dictating like what people see a lot of and what people don't see a lot of it changes like people's perception about what something is right so he was speaking to movement and movement culture and saying like well if the algorithm is like really you know bringing a lot of views to certain types of content and not a lot of views to other types of content that's going to frame for people what what movement is or what a movement practice looks like, or like what it means to be, you know, embodied in some way. Um, and then I didn't get to hear the rest, but what I think there's a little bit of alluding to is that like kind of um, sexy movement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and this, this again, th this is something which, um, which I suppose accounts for part of my discomfort with social media at certain times is that by the very nature of those forms of communication, which don't get me wrong, they can be very valuable. Um, but I think by the nature of them, they're about presenting a certain 
shiny facade or a certain, you know, perhaps shiny is not even the word because I know it's possible to be vulnerable in those spaces. But I've yet to find a way of engaging in those spaces in, in which I am uh, not thinking about how I'm perceived by others, basically. I think there is a sense in which in that space, part of the agreed framework is that you are presenting something for consumption by other people. And just speaking for myself, I've yet to find a way in which, you know, I'm putting things into that space without any sense of, you know, care about how it's received. And I think that's okay. I think in a way that's not so different from how we behave socially, you know, in, in, the, in the real world, as it were. But nonetheless, there's there's something about these technologies now that, that because they can be so all pervasive and because we can spend so much of our time there and perhaps because they can affect the income for some of us, it can quickly turn to um, a toxic thing where, you know, perhaps before, you know, maybe it's normal to spend 15 percent of a normal human day wondering what other people are thinking about us. You know, we're fundamentally kind of a you know, a pack animal, if you like. So perhaps that's okay. But when that percentage nudges up to 20%, 50% of a day or more, then then I, I think my intuition is that that is just fundamentally not um not not a great, great space to to spend time really. And also the or, or not not spend too much time, let's say. And on the on the sort of sexy movement angle as well, I, I, I got to a point where, you know, and cards on the table here, Kyle, you, I, I pursued, you know, sexy movement for some time. <laughs> I was really like, I was heavily invested in, you know, achieving certain tricks and aesthetics for a long time. So I've like, I've definitely walked that path and I'm, I'm not, here, not judging, but um, I don't think that there's, um, I think there is more satisfaction to be had in self-defining physical practices which bring us joy than defining practices which, you know, maybe you'll get applause from other people for. But I think it's more than possible to, you know, have a practice which actually, you know, maybe you are very strong, maybe you're incredibly flexible, maybe you've got an amazing movement vocabulary. And actually, that practice hasn't really grown out of your own heart, your own soul, however you want to put it. And these days, I'm really interested in helping people find practices which perhaps um, or help them to help themselves find practices which really do speak to them or come from them. You know, I think a good physical practice can be like a fingerprint. It's completely unique. It's as unique as you are. And actually, perhaps a more empowering way of engaging with with teachers is just finding messages which which resonate and which help you find more of what's in you rather than, uh, you know, trying to um, kind of copycat what other people are doing, um, if that makes any any sense there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also like a perfect kind of segue into yeah, like what, what it is that you're doing and, and how you're, and how you're presenting and sharing with people. Yeah. Well, I mean, in full honesty, like what I'm doing 
what am I doing is the question that I continue to ask without a, a satisfying answer <laughs> and have been doing for some time. So, so I, I expect, yeah, the answer that I give today could easily evolve by next week. But um, I suppose in a, in a nutshell, um, my own journey with physical practice has, has been, you know, through that practitioner route of at one time really wanting, you know, just, having quite a profound joy in the body, a real sense of freedom, then then getting obsessed with practices which perhaps like look linked to certain aesthetics, then feeling fed up with that and being like, there's got to be something deeper here. And then getting to a place where, um, where, as I say, you know, it was more about um, helping, helping myself and helping other people find practices that, that speak to them. But the, these days, basically my, um, my work, it, it doesn't divide neatly because I'm not a neat person, but really I suppose there's, there's four aspects to it really. Um, I work as a kind of, um, as a performer and, and theater maker in, 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 on the art side of things because I do, I believe that, um, yeah, physical storytelling is a beautiful thing. Um, and, and I think it's just a wonderful thing to share, share with audiences. So, so that, that's part of my life. Um, I'm also a coach and I coach through um, a company I founded uh, some years ago called Body Roots. And in that space, uh, I'm sharing kind of movement practice and working with some practitioners who, who like me, enjoy dance acrobatics and want to kind of, you know, um, express in those ways. But I also work through that that coaching um, aspect with people that are perhaps just trying, you know, dance acrobatics isn't their thing, but they feel called toward physical practice and they, they want some kind of um, not even guidance, but handholding, you know, just handholding in, in, on, and signposting. Um, and I, I really enjoy, enjoy that kind of work. I've run a course for some time called the finding my practice course, which really, again, is just a confidence builder for people who gravitate toward physicality um, and yet don't necessarily know um, where they want to go with it. And I take them through a kind of, um, yeah, a course really of, of, of confronting questions, which, you know, I don't have the answers to, but I, I perhaps hope in posing those questions, they can find some answers for themselves. Um, and then just the other two aspects, I also, I'm quite passionate about accessible arts for people with disabilities. I feel that um, anyone that has a body, which is everyone, has a right to enjoy that body, uh, to tell stories through that body. So I'm a real advocate and a consultant for, um, for arts access in, in this country, in the UK. Um, and, and finally, and more recently, I'm just also moving in into kind of healthcare and application of some of my expertise in, um, yeah, in, in spaces for people that, that, that perhaps aren't, aren't very well physically. So as you can tell, what I'm trying to tell you, Kyle, is I'm completely <laughs> schizophrenic, but all of these things bring me, bring me joy. So um, I just, I've been finding my way uh, to kind of yeah thread a life that can involve uh, a bit of all of them oh that's a yeah you're you're kind of like a uh, like a movement hustler yeah <laughs> nice <laughs> oh man kyle you've just redefined my branding there it is, <laughs> this is, what that is. yeah yeah 
yeah, I'll be moving forward with that. But that, that this is great because again, I think that you know, move, movement is something which defies definition. You know, it's something which you know, it's right there in the name, movement. It's moving. It's changing. It's in flux. So I think these days I'm kind of cautious over anything um, which which tries to nail it down in two concrete terms. You know, I think movement can be something beautifully mischievous um and we should kind of allow allow the space for that you know what we're what we're saying movement practices you know now is not what we were saying five years ago it certainly won't be the same in five years time you know and that that's something to celebrate rather than to to fear yeah i like uh i like that you said it should be mischievous i like that um, I might steal that one from you, actually. I really no, like Well, that. we'll call it an exchange, man. I'll take movement <laughs> hustler. You do what you like with mischievous. Yeah, no royalties yeah. expected. But again, you know, it's the, um, it's very finite and infinite games. Like, you know, boundaries are there to be played with, not within. To me, that's mischievous, right? Oh, totally. And, you know, my, my background in circus training just felt like an absolute boot camp in this. Uh, man, I could talk about circus for hours, but I, you know, it's, as a word, it shares the same root as like, you know, circle. It's this sense. And most circuses initially were being performed naturally in the round because that was the shape of the, the tents. And, you know, a circle is something which seems to kind of uh, contain but, you know, the best of circus, which is perhaps, you know, one of the more mischievous art forms, circus is just looking constantly to defy its own definition. You know, circus grew out of freak shows. It grew out of the sense of the things which are held at the edges of our social circles. Mm -hmm. And it was like this space was was created for, for them. So I think... Um, yeah, circus for me is. I'm just so grateful to have been blessed to spend some time in in that world because that is, you know, if we if we if we're interested in mischief, man, look to circus, look to clowning, look to comedy because that is, um, that, yeah, that is full of it. Yeah, I mean, there's something so mm, like to me to to take risks in interesting ways to like be mischievous takes a and to do it successfully whatever that means um takes a high degree of sensitivity and i think that that's what i dig like i went and saw a burlesque show the other day and admitting it was the, my very first burlesque show I'd ever been to. And it was down in Coney Island in here in New York, which I don't know if you know, is like where they used to do the I freak do. shows. I do. I, I, I was delighted that I got to spend my uh, 19th birthday in, in, in Coney Island. Yeah, oh, well then, uh, perfect. Joyful place. So it was, at the, it was at the theater where they, do, where they did all the freak shows and everything. And, and hearing you talk about this, I'm like, what that, that entire show was this like, mischievous like risky performance and it couldn't have been more joyful to watch and witness and it was for that reason it was like we're doing it not the way that we not the not like the book of supposed to way we're going to do it like oh. with our thumbprint way but with high sensitivity exactly this and i mean you know like if you consider it it's a very common patterning that some of the most celebrated 
kind of you know modern day clowns if you like are people that um that maybe have a an incredibly high degree of sensitivity to the extent that you know maybe at times it borders on on the depressive you know the the kind of uh, the sad clown or the sense of the you know depressed comedian this is something which just repeats itself you know every every age um yeah robin williams jim carrey just to name a few but i i think this is what is um really joyful for me about the world of circus and this kind of connects again to our um thread about social media but if we think of a circle as something which is is a boundary okay it's a delineation of a boundary a circle that's what it is anywhere anything that i'm putting inside that circle is excluding something else and that's in a way what we do with social media when okay what's what's you know what's the the sexiest thing right now what's center of the circle and what i love about circus is that it is constantly um shines that spotlight toward the edge of the circle what are the things we're excluding here it creates space for the spaceless which mm. is really what you know what actually if you go right back to uh, medieval times that was the role of a jester in the royal court the jester was the guy that could say the thing to the king that needed to be said but which if anybody else said it they'd have their their heads chopped off you know, this role, we feel it deeply as humans that we need to have sensitive people who are able to remind us of the things which we're forgetting are important. And I think clowning, comedy, circus um, is a really joyful space that, you know, that's the mission of it in many ways. What are we excluding? What are we excluding? So always the the anarchist in me has always felt drawn to uh, to that realm. Love it. Yeah, it's a, I have a book, uh, I forget who wrote it. He's someone well-known, um, but the, it's, it's called, I want to say it's Trickster Makes This World, Trickster Makes Our World. Um, ah, okay. okay. But it's the not idea one, that like- Not one I heard of, but, but the, 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 the trickster archetype is- Yeah, it, emerges it's everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think as well, <laughs> again, I'm just speaking for myself here, but- even this idea of um, trickster, jester, clown, comedian, it's important that we keep moving the language we have around it. Because again, the moment we label it, we concretize it. And, and we're talking here about a force that is trying to defy being accurately named. That's what the trickster is. <laughs> mm. So this idea, I, you know, I love, I love the fact that through the ages that, that, you know, we've never been able to actually find a single term which can can apply to the, to to that energy. You know, it constantly shrugs, um, shrugs off whatever we try and put on it. And, and again, I think that's um, I think that's a, a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing. I think about it with play a lot because I, th I think and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that play is kind of having a, a bit of like a moment. I think people are talking a lot about play. Like I even know that um, like Huberman Lab did a whole episode on play. Um, and, but it's one of those things, again, like people are trying to nail it down. And the thing with play is like, once you call it that, it's not that anymore. 
Exactly, man. It's always exactly. changing. I could think it like for it to be play, that means that like whatever it was is not that anymore. It's something else. Like by the time you've like been like, oh, that's play, well, it's moved on to something else. For sure, for sure. And and at the same time, I would suggest that it's a really beautiful game to be involved with, to be trying to name the nameless. You know, mm. it's also, it's not that empowering, I think, to just be like, right, well, we just can't talk about this, guys. You know, this defies description, so we just can't talk about it. Well, that would rule out the, you know, the entire realm of spirituality, you know, <laughs> rule out a lot of things. I think it's a very human thing to do to try and name things which ultimately are going to evade that or turn out not to be the thing they thought we were. And I think we can find joy in 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 that you know, in, in that journey. I mean, this really speaks to me right now because, for example, you know, the word play is something that I've kind of involved in my work at different times. And I eventually sidestepped it because I kept coming up against um, an expectation from participants that play had to mean lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. And actually, I feel that play can be very serious that's part of it it can be whatever we need it to be you know in in that moment and I'm finding myself coming full circle with this right now because although I don't choose that word so much a lot of my work is about play about the pursuit of joy the pursuit of peacefulness um but I'm in a position where I'm about to enter quite um quite a serious um place i'm going to be working um one-to-one in a oncology cancer ward in a hospital and i'm having a lot of questions around how can i engage playfully with that space and i think that you know it, it can be really empowering to consider that um yeah play and joy don't have to um they they can be about getting to grips with the texture of a moment. They don't have to be about, you know, framing something with big smiles and laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I completely hear where you're you're coming from um, on, on that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, at least the way that I always, for now, present it is that to play is to be um, welcoming of surprise, to be like welcoming of uncertainty, which means that like, it can be kind and it can be lighthearted, but it can also be all the other things as well. Beautiful. I mean, can, man, that, that might be, yeah. It can be heartbreaking. It can be grief stricken. It can be, um, there can be fury. Like, you know, it's, it's all, yeah. of, all of those things, you know, if it's done playfully. Com- oh, completely. And this, like the the best most enjoyable piece of academic work that that I've ever done was uh during my philosophy degree I got to spend a year writing a dissertation on on the value of humor and laughter basically and it was so joyful that whole time because uh you know I went in with one sense of what humor is and means and can be and every time that I tried to defend the thesis of it as that, I found myself like rumbling at my own, um, my own attempts to concretize it. So I, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that that might just be, um, I might be mischievously, tricksterly 
stealing your definition there, man, for the future. Because openness to surprise might just be the the the, the best um, definition of play I've come across yet. Oh, I love that. I, and I would love to read your, is your dissertation available somewhere? Oh my gosh. I put it online about, I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's flying around in the ether there, there somewhere. I think I put it online about, um, God, 10 years ago now, but, um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that, leave that to other people. I'll, I'll definitely cringe knowing people are reading it. So I'll yeah, leave yeah. that for other people. To, let, uh, let, 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 let people sleuth around for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's important to have, especially if you're into the trickster man, it's important to have an element of, uh, of, of mystery. So I'll let, let people get their, um, their detective outfits on for that one. Yeah. I would say that there's some funny little theme happening right here with like, like thievery. And I feel like, um, that there, there is such a deep value in, in the stealing and the adding to, and it can be something that can be really stigmatized. Um, especially oh. when people take such strong ownership over things and ownership often comes with like defining things very hard, like putting like a cron concrete definition on something. And then it, then it's, now it's something that can be stolen and because it's mine and I've put a name on it, but like all the beauty that we, so many of the beautiful things that we're seeing come out of like creative spaces are, and maybe I would almost argue all of them are things that are some product of like being stolen and then added to. For sure. And, and I, I think this is like, um, this, our conversations going in beautiful figures of eights and loops now, man, because it's all, <laughs> it's all connected of course. But I think, you know, to, for for me to enjoy life fully is to recognize how close we sit on a daily basis to to death decay the possibility of dying ourselves and that for me like recognizing death is such a call to arms to enjoy our own lives for however long we've kind of we've got them but this sense of um you know th this sense of like right well well mine if this idea that I, things are mine and that I own them and they're mine and they can be stolen again, that like, if, if we just spend any time thinking about death, that has to fall apart really quickly because nothing's really mine, man. I'm, I'm like renting everything I own for however long I'm here in the material world, basically, you know, including my body, <laughs> this is going <laughs> to fall apart at some point too. And then that for me is such a freeing space because, you know, if it's all, um, if it's all rented, if it's all kind of, you know, up for grabs, if it's all passing through and in, in movement, in flux, that is a space in which I can kind of, you know, enjoy things for as long as I engage with them. And I can also feel free to be like, right, well, you know, this is uh, Matt engaging with Kyle's ideas aren't Kyle's ideas anymore. They've become something else. There was the first time I went to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as a performer, there was this Dutch arts company whose name I forget now, but I remember their slogan. Their slogan was, it's all been done before, but not here, not now, and not by us. <laughs> and I thought that's absolutely wonderful. And I've just carried that in my heart ever since, because surely this is what we, you know, we want for our children even to just, you know, in, enjoy life and through the enjoying of it, let it, let it change 
change through them, I think. So, and, and that, again, you know, it just deconstructs these ideas of mine and ownership. And that is a space which can be, uh, can be really, really freeing. I mean, this is not necessarily what he meant by this, this, this statement, but it, it, but in some ways, I think he would agree if he were probably, if he were alive, but Alan Watts said this beautiful line, beautiful line. He said, you know, we didn't come into this earth. We emerged from it. And that's what it is. It's like, you know, we're coming out of it with all the stories and all the experiences that like came before us. Completely. I I have to say at this this juncture Kyle I've never had the experience of sort of encountering a kindred spirit while being recorded live for a podcast (laughs) by the amount of overlap with our um our our reading lists and listening lists because yeah recently you know my sort of number one played podcast has been uh the the Alan Watts archive opened up by his son wonderful um podcast um but you know, again, there's a that phrase from Alan Watts that speaks to the same thing about the fact that, like, actually, you know, we are all kind of um, leaves on the tree of life. You know, this is like we're expressions of a fundamental collective consciousness, which is shared and in which we participate. And then we we're just reflections of that thing. And again, I think that can be you know, in a capitalist society that can set off all kinds of alarm bells because we've been, you know, educated in a very individualistic way. Um, but which, you know, also has its has its joy. I, you know, I, I'm a happy guy that's grown up in a liberal Western society. And yeah, there's a lot of good to say for that. So I'm also not, you know, capitalism bashing, which I've been a huge, you know, beneficiary of. Um but at the same time, I think we are talking about something there where you're working, where most of your attention is focused on on the limited, on the lim- the limiting factor. And, and fundamentally, I don't feel like that's what the human being is. I think the human being is, is um, something harmonious that finds its true nature through exchange w- with other human beings. And then in that way is reminded that we're all part of the same thing, um, really. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever, have you ever Kyle come across this word, which I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of it, but it's uh, Ubuntu, African words, mm-hmm. Ubuntu. Okay, it's it. My understanding of it is um, that we could perhaps translate it in English as uh, "I am because you are," mm-hmm. and it's the sense in which humanity is something which is mutually defined it's something which we find together and emerges out of our our meeting and i think again that is something which is um is really empowering and and kind of defies um defies description it's something you know you have to kind of feel that in your body as a kind of warmth it's something which you know you can't can't just like th- those are words which which speaks to the heart, not to the head for me. And bringing us back, there's a certain poetry uh, about it. I think about it like, you know, I come from spaces where movement wise, there's a lot of like efforts to get everybody moving in the same way and looking the same and doing the same. And 
it, there's a certain beauty to that, but there's like, it's, 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 it's a very individual experience. Not that you're not doing it with other people and being having some sort of inspiration, but like there's this effort to kind of get everybody looking and moving the same way. But there's something, there's something different that happens when you get to bring all of your stories and, and they meet mine and we have a nonverbal interaction with those stories meeting that is a, a reflection to one another about who we are. And then an exchange of stories that happen. And it's, as you said, it's, it's, it's more poetic than it's something that can be nailed down, but it's deeply enriching and deeply nourishing. And it speaks as I think to a bit of what you're saying about like, it's not about not being unique. It's not about not being an individual, but it's also about taking that uniqueness and individuality and it dancing with all that happens in life and letting it all kind of feed one another completely completely this for me there was there was someone who came to one of my workshops years ago who was a massage practitioner and you know just kind of out of politeness I, you know i asked what what her business name was and the name of her business was the house of our stories because she said that the body is the house of our stories and I, for me i was like that is wonderful because under that definition, movement becomes um, the mutual emergence of our stories speaking to each other. If you and I are moving together, my story, my life experience I, is, is, is merging with yours and perhaps something can be learned. And, and, and indeed, both those stories will then be changed by the very nature of the meeting. And as far as, you know, this, I completely hear what you're saying about the limitation of trying to get everyone move the, moving the same, because I, um, you know, in the last five years, I've focused a lot more of my work working with, um, with older practitioners. You know, I'm a firm believer that the body is to be enjoyed at any time and any stage of our lives. I really mean that, you know, I want to be, if I make it as far as my 80s and 90s, I hope I can be enjoying my body at that time. And I hope there are people holding spaces to enjoy the body at that time. I think as long as you have a body, there's something, there's room for joy to be experienced in it and with it and, and through it. But if, if, you know, if we're trying to get people to move in the same ways, well, you know, I'm 35 years old. I actually have no sense, lived sense of what, uh, a 60 year old body might feel like internally. So the idea that I can be speaking with, you know, someone in their mid sixties and saying, no, you, you need to move more like this. Ah, again, I feel there's a intuitively feel there's a fundamental disempowerment happening there because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm bringing my age limited story and then dictating it to, to theirs, uh, perhaps a much, much more empowering thing will be to be like, okay, how do you, and bringing this back to Alan Watts, <laughs> Alan Watts, you know, my teaching mantra is stolen wholesale from Alan Watts, who said, I teach to share what I enjoy. This is what I do. I teach to share what I enjoy. Now, if I'm teaching in this way, I'm just offering a proposal of things, ideas of the body that I've enjoyed. That creates a space in which someone in their 60s or 70s 
can ask the same question for them. And then then we're in this, you know, conversation which is mutually enriching. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, again, I, I think all of this stuff, it's hard, man, because we're trying to we're trying to language something which if we're doing it well will constantly evolve and then need to be described in new ways but again yeah. there's there's a lot of fun in in the attempt yeah and it's you know you're talking about something that i have seen and i've participated in in the way that i don't want to participate in anymore but like the the enoughness the the mm -hmm. and maybe that's something that emerges through capitalism i have no idea but like you know, when it comes to movement or when it comes to play or when it comes to dance or when it comes to fighting or grappling, there can be a lot of language of like not enoughness. Like you're not ready to do this thing yet. Like you need to, you need to check these other boxes before you can do this thing. Um, and it makes people feel like, well, I'm not ready to dance yet or I'm not ready to, to fight a rough house yet. And I really believe that at every single place in life, wherever you're coming from, there's a way to do all of these things. If we kind of let go of like the, the judging and over-defining of like what is, and also letting go of um, competition or like the performative aspects of everything or aesthetic aspects of uh, aspect, not that those things don't belong and that they aren't beautiful and have their own space, but placing them I don't know, maybe redefining the seriousness of those things in ah, some ways. Ab absolutely. And again, I think in a way this brings us back to mischief because like what, what pops into my head and heart what, listening to you there is an experience I had while I was like training at a dance school. And, and this, this particular dance school, uh, wonderful experience, don't get me wrong. Um, I, 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 did, I did enjoy the, 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 the discipline of the thing. But I just kept meeting. I wanted to laugh because, you know, we were spending eight hours a day in kind of ballet and contemporary classes where we were just, you know, being like, right, your body has to be exactly here. Uh, you know, this and this is the correct form for this. Um, and then we would have this other class that was um, it was called something like history of dance. Um, and in this class, you know, it was the, the sort of sit down lecture class. And we were just being spoken to every day about the pioneers, you know, of, of, of contemporary dance. And it's such a common thread that pioneers in different areas of dance are people who had, um, you know, potentially life-changing injuries, couldn't engage successfully with the form uh, that was kind of, you know, sexy or the, the, the kind of zeitgeist of the time and then had to uh, find a new way to access and embody something different. Like this is such a common thread, really, you know, injury, uh, in profound engagement with the body, injury, seeking for new things. We call them the pioneers. They're pioneers because they had to do something a new way. Exactly. And yet we are, you know, we're like educating people according to what, um, the, what 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 things should look like and i just find that so fascinating that it's again it's almost like you know life life is constantly trying to remind us that you know you you, you can you can find your way with this thing yeah. um that like our imperfections uh, are our imperfections are our magic
Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think also that there's something that I, I just want. I think we need to be careful to be quite nuanced in this because I think it can also be quite naive to just be like, well, you know, I can do I, anyone can do anything at any time, because I also do think that there's a value in having hierarchies of information. I think hierarchies of information can be really empowering. They can be ways in which you are walked through another person's journey with the um, with the knowledge that you're there to kind of enrich your own journey. And I've done that, you know, countless times. But I think the challenge comes when we make this leap that a hierarchy of information is just that. It's a hierarchy of information. When that leads to kind of hierarchies of people, like, you know, then that becomes really fundamentally disempowering. And I mm. think that's in my own journey. That's something I had to unpick where I realized I was I was really working from a lot of assumptions that um, I was like, right, if I get better physically in these ways, then I'll finally give myself the gift of self-acceptance that I get. I give to all these amazing practitioners. And I actually realized, you know, I, I've chased that for 15 years and that horizon, it's like a mirage. It'll just constantly appear on the next one. Actually, I, I need to work the other way. Right. What's Matt interested in? What's the joy that can be found in this body today? And then and, and just speaking for myself, you know, like having having a, an ongoing conversation with myself about physical joy that is what I want physical practice to look like for me these days. And I find that I think the people that get magnetized to my work are perhaps people that have had maybe like a similar journey where, you know, they're at a point where they're exhausted and they just want to feel, they want to feel enough now and let movement be uh, an expression of joy in their lives rather than expression of um, chasing uh not enoughness shoulding this kind of thing mm -hmm. right like i think there's a lot of I, I talked to um aaron cantor do you know aaron cantor oh goodness me yes aaron a magical magical man in my my books and and i mean we've had a lot of conversation about tricksters i, I don't know that i've ever met a better personification of that archetype yeah He's a, he is something else. And he talked a lot about this idea of like being and becoming, right? And that there should be space for both. Um, and I think, you know, even when we talk about like finite play and infinite play, it's so easy to like romanticize about infinite play and be like, this is the ideal or something, but realizing that like, well, finite play belongs as well. It's just maybe reanalyzing or relooking at our relationship to finite play. And I can get really, I can get really romantic about like the being, right? And not mm -hmm. remember that like becoming has its place. And it's yes. just about kind of yep. rebalancing the scales a little bit. Um, and also giving people permission to, to, to be in the place of being that they don't need to always be in the be becoming or that just because somebody's at the starting point of a journey or what they think is the starting point of a journey or doing something they've never done before doesn't mean that they can't be in the being place with it as well right 
I think that's what like my experience. Like, you know, I did I did a retreat a couple months ago and there were a couple people who were in their 70s who ended up coming. And I was like, well, there is a way that these that that they can rough house and there is a way that like they can dance the same way that all these other people who are here are not professional dancers and probably don't have fighting experience. Like there's a place for everybody to to do the being of these things and i i would suggest as well i i I sometimes take things a step further there there's um there's a principle that i've i've borrowed from a company that i worked with as a facilitator for many years working with um uh artists actors dancers with learning disabilities and i will name check them they're called hijinks theater based in wales in in the uk um, but one of their kind of guiding principles is that whoever is in the room are the right people to be in the room. The first thing you like drop is any sense that like, ah, oh, well, this space is for certain people and not for others. Or it's like, you know, oh, we're going to have to change the nature of what we're doing because these people are here. Well, then that's what needs to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that that is um, that there's a there's a trust that is holding that which can just be it really puts us in the unknown so like i i had an experience similar to what you described some years ago when i was teaching a, a an acrobatics workshop and generally speaking the people that magnetized toward the, the way i was marketing that workshop at the time were people in their yeah their you know teens 20s and 30s and then i had you know someone i think in their like early 60s mid 60s come come along and uh and and i just had to catch myself with that you know there was an immediate thought of like oh man okay well there's only two options either i kind of like lower the level of the material um to meet the participants or um or they're they're just gonna have a horrible time you know and i think that was a really um incorrect disempowering very binary way of doing it these days i prefer to think that like look if someone's being magnetized to acrobatics at whatever age then let's co-create the way in which that can be empowering all right maybe i don't know it because i don't have a, a 60 year old body just yet but there's probably a way of like letting our experiences meet each other and find that space um and I think like acrobatics in particular is <laughs> I, I used to have a lot of fear in me about acrobatics because I love it so much. It's like my favorite expression of human three dimensionality. And I thought, man, these moves, they've got such impact. You're not going to be able to do this forever. And it used to be a real kind of heaviness in my heart. And these days, like I'm excited by the idea that, you know, like an acrobatics practice really is a an ongoing conversation with um, the nature of risk and the nature of fear and the nature of um, opening yourself to the unknown in quite like fiercely embodied ways. And I mean, man, that is, that is a journey that can last for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it can and will. Um, yeah. And, 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 and the way that you play with it is going to change because you're going to like, you're going to be surprised by like how, how your body changes and 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 it'll it 
it will it will be different and that's okay and the the joy and, can and be the, in the excitement exactly. of how it changes and the interest itself will change you know it's like it's almost like you know i'm not here at 35 mourning the fact that i don't play with my lego anymore it's like the the, the toys that i gravitate toward will continue to change because i'm changing so it's like it all figures itself out and i think speaking for myself it's been incredibly fruitful to hold a space of um calmness and analysis of of fears that come up around our bodies in that way uh, i i think usually if i investigate a fear in myself about my own physicality sat at the heart of that fear there's a pearl of what i find joyful there's mm -hmm. information to be found over what i really enjoy and actually i then you know maybe i have to find ways of re-engaging with that joy as i age but i certainly don't have to um to stop entirely although you know i i also can if i want to that's also okay <laughs> mm -hmm. well some um, i mean i mean we're I feel like we're like emerging full circle right here, but I think that like it comes back to the like the the conversation about change and death, right? Mm. For like the 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 new beauty to emerge, something else is going to die, and there's going to be compost that that's going to grow out of. And like I I can speak to like my experience, like I said earlier, like I am loving memorizing and reciting poetry, but if I was still practicing handstands and gymnastics i wouldn't have the space to be learning the poetry do that for sure so like that thing had to die and there had to be some compost that had to turn into soil and it's like okay well in that space like something else is growing and then someday it'll just, be other things and you've just said it for me and th this is this is it's really great that these words have just emerged because you know again like i think it can you said you know to die and then you said the word space space and i think space is a slightly easier uh to swallow way of conceiving of this stuff you know I, i'm speaking as someone who i speak far too freely about death far too i probably end too many of my social interactions by accidentally my wife calls it dropping the d-bomb <laughs> when I'm talking, talking too much about death in a situation that doesn't require it. So, but I think, you know, another way of framing it um, is just about space that emerges. And I, I think for me, there's, there's something about trust here that is absolutely key. It's the trust that I can trust in the process of life that is unfolding through me in such a way that um, there's always going to be a new space emerging and there's no reason that that space can't be just as fun as the one that went before it um yeah it's, I, it's, I, just, I, it's just that it's just that sensitivity and it's like i find it something that it's like I, I repeat constantly but like if we think that something is supposed to happen we might miss out on what's happening yeah wonderful wonderful and this again on the being and becoming you know uh I used to do these intensive um, Buddhist meditation retreats, which don't get me wrong. Again, I got a lot, a lot out of that that phase of my life. But I, I, on one of these, I suddenly had a sense of being like, I had a sense of spending so much time romanticizing being, 
that I was like, I feel like a guy who's like just paid for like a 25,000 pounds safari. And then he's just going and he's sitting in his hotel room. I was like, yeah, it is all about the being. Of course, we've got to be moving from that place. But also while I'm here in the material world, becoming's also happening. And that can be really fun, you know, mm -hmm. and that sense mm -hmm. of like, yeah there's got there's got to be a fruitful conversation happening here between between the two um yeah i think it's just yeah. i think it's the i think it's the measure of seriousness i think it's the like you know how seriously we take the becoming and, oh, and yes. adjusting that relationship like oh it's there but like how how serious do i need to take that or how much intensity do i need to put on that or how much pressure do i need to put on myself for that to happen engage with that and, and even and where and where is that um where is that voice coming from in me you know where, where is that like that narrative of like if there's a should in there is that like a wise should <laughs> or mm -hmm. is that like a, a kind of you know fearful little me kind of kind of should yeah to uh, totally uh, totally hear you authentic desire is something that i i have struggled with and continue to struggle with because there's so many narratives and expectations and stories and supposed to's that are like kind of stuck onto us from a, a lifetime, you know, and kind of peeling them back and looking behind them and being like, oh, like, is this really what I want? Or is this really a, a, a true desire? Or is this something that's been slapped on me? Uh, I Absolutely. And yeah, I think there's reason for great hope and optimism here because, yeah, that journey you describe is true. And at the same time, every single one of us has been given a complete compass in the body. My body doesn't lie about what it wants. You know, if I'm asking and I think this can take a certain amount of practice, but asking and answering honestly what my body enjoys I always get a true answer for that. You know, if I if I'm saying, yeah, no, I, I do. I do enjoy doing 12 hours of acrobatics a day. I really do, Matt. And actually, I'm bullshitting myself. Well, surprise, surprise, I get ill. My life starts to sort of not feel very functional. I think the I, I think the, the body is the greatest ally in authenticity we can have because I can you know, I can chat to myself in my mind all day and all night about about these things but actually the body the body if i just have a lived direct experience of it um it it tells me what it wants man it just it, it tells me what it what it wants and needs mm, it's like um have you read the artist's way i have yeah a couple of mm. times yeah I, I revisited this i did it once about 15 years ago and then revisited yeah in the last couple of years as as a, as a you know I think it always feels like a first reading with that. Yeah. However many times I might have done the tasks. I like the idea that like the the artist is like our child, right? And like my, almost like the most authentic expression of 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 you know how we move, how we interact with the world is like from that child. That's like our some people might call it like the higher self or something. The the mm -hmm. That's our creative, our like pure creativity or all of our authentic desires or something are like there without the stories in the way. And I think that things like 
playing and dancing and, and, and the rough housing and all the things that get us out of our own way is like that creating that and meditation, whatever, all these things. They're, they're, they're the creating of the channel to that. To Absolutely. That. Absolutely. And then the more we dance and play with that and create those openings, the more that like almost like those, the wider those cracks seem to stay potentially. And that, that is like, you know, I think there's, um, uh, it's kind of just a re rephrasing of of what you're saying here but there's this for me there's a sense in which being a child is a profoundly embodied experience as a child you are living intuitively and naturally through the body first and foremost and you know the head and the mind i think it kind of speaks louder as we as we grow up and we perhaps you know prioritize it more in in those ways um and i think there's a real value in um in just finding ways as an adult either to either as a growing adult to just keep that um keep that connection with the 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 childlike part of ourselves or even as uh, you know as an older adult who maybe maybe you're in your 70s and actually you've spent 50 years like not with that space but the joy of it is it can be reclaimed anytime we have this like lived memory of every single one of us grew up experiencing the world first and foremost through a physical practice of being alive in the body learning to walk all of this even if you don't do that for 50 years you can pick back up where you left off you know mm -hmm. and to bring it sort of full circle to poetry favorite poet of you know I'm a bit of a um it's a bit cringy I'm a, a classicist in this I, I like the classics but William Blake his poetry mm. is just absolutely wonderful and you know he had the songs of innocence and experience which are these poems you know half about um kind of childlike joy and half about how difficult the world is as an adult but in most of the they're called the songs of experience in most of those uh, poems there's a character who you meet who is um an adult who somehow has a beacon of childlike stuff still in them there's always this character or this atmosphere in the background of there is a way to bring our innocence, our childlikeness, our joy, our embodiment back into our lives as a full adult. And that it will be all the richer for having taken that, that journey. Um, mm. Mm. I'm, I'm going to let you, you should wrap this whole thing up, not me, but I'm going to say one thing and then I'll let you say whatever you want to say to finish this thing up. Because I realize as we're talking about this, like the, the, the childlike innocence, the child, the artist is, the, is really like the intuitive mind, right? Mm -hmm. and there's a quote that I love. I've probably said it on here before, but it doesn't matter. It's worth saying right now because I haven't said it to you. Um, but it's, it's an Albert Einstein quote. And, he, and maybe you've heard it, but he said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We've created, oh. we've created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And then I would add that, like, I would just add that the gift never goes away. It just needs to be unwrapped. 
wholeheartedly agree. And like I've never heard that quote, but it's um, yeah, it feels like it could sit right alongside one one that I have from the Dalai Lama that is along you know along the lines of the fact that like we we need we need more more wisdom of the heart and less knowledge of the brain it's this sense of like there are forces at work within ourselves which we can tune into because they're always there and then move from move from that space um wonderful thanks for sharing that one Kyle that'll be getting um getting put up on my my fridge today <laughs> nice um, um I will, yeah I any, will, anything like, you want to add anything you want to add the the, the well, mic is yours to finish I up think, on here yeah i i have a um I, I sort of every time i'm involved in a podcast i naively get lost in the joy of the conversation between two people that i forget that there's you know part of the purpose of it is is listeners and and so what I'll drop in is something, you know, to kind of um, what I hope can be an open-ended question to empower, you know, anybody that might be listening to this. And that is something that's just brought huge joy to my own life. And it's asking oneself, what would a daily discipline look like of asking what's bringing my body joy today? Just and I mean a daily discipline. It, it can just be, it can be one minute, you know, it can be a tiny sliver of the day, but having at least a moment in the day where you're asking yourself honestly, what does my body feel like right now? And maybe you have the capacity to, to follow that. Maybe you don't, but I think even if you, even if you're not following it, the very asking of that question in a, wholehearted embodied way um creates a space that starts to open um and that that space can just move us toward really empowering physical practices but also really fulfilled empowered lives so i'll i'll leave it with that 